This summer we are following the movement of the Holy Spirit in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, and we continue on that journey today in the 15th chapter of Acts, the first 12 verses. The story picks up with the church in Antioch, where we learn at the end of chapter 14, Barnabas and Paul are, and where they have been for some time. Listen now to God's word to us from Acts chapter 15. Then certain individuals from Judea were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But, some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as God did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, God has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things that uh, you learn about me pretty quickly is that I really like to listen to podcasts. You guys like podcasts? Short little audio things, you download them, listen to them on your phone. It's an annoying quirk of mine that I'm constantly dropping references to podcasts and conversations with people. So I thought I would do that today. <laughs> uh, presently, I'm really into the current season of a podcast called Startup. Anybody heard of Startup? Okay. Well, that's because you were here at 930. <laughs> at cheating. Startup is a show about what it is like to start something new, like a business. Except the current season is about a startup church a church plant. And turns out, it's really tough to start a church. I mean, it's tough to be a church. It's especially tough to start a church. 
The challenges of money and leadership and buildings and marketing are never ending. And you have a very small window, like 12 months, to make it work before most of the research into church planting agrees it will not work. So, Startup is following one particular church plant in Philadelphia in its first year of trying to get off the ground, double its initial membership, and become a sustainable presence for good in its neighborhood. There's your podcast recommendation for the day. Come back later for more. I mention it because the church in Antioch that we learn about in Acts 15 is a startup. We first hear about it a few chapters earlier in Acts 11. There's a persecution that happens in Jerusalem, and lots of the believers there flee to towns around, including Antioch. And as they go, they do mostly what they had done in Jerusalem. That is, they share the gospel. But they share the gospel with their Jewish compatriots, for the most part. Except there are some of them who start talking in Antioch to Hellenists, that is, Greek-speaking non-Jewish people, Gentiles. The story says that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them became believers and turned to the Lord. They are saved in the language of Acts. So now we have Greek disciples, followers of Jesus, in Antioch, and that is a big deal. And there's three things that we learn that are really remarkable about this startup community in Antioch. First, the term Christian is first applied to them. Christian means little Christs. A lot of scholars think that it's a derogatory term. It's first applied to the church in Antioch. Second, this little Antioch startup sends aid, money, to the believers in Judea. They learn about a coming famine in Judea and decide to send the believers there some money to help out. It's the first instance in the New Testament of churches offering aid to each other. And that aid goes from a Greek church to a Jewish one. This group of saved Gentiles acts to save their fellow Jewish believers in a crisis. And then, finally, they commission missionaries. It had never happened before. If you were here last Sunday, you heard this story in chapter 14. Somebody discerns the Spirit, telling them to set aside Paul and Barnabas for a special body of work. And they just do it. This little startup has these two CEOs, and they just let them go. They go off into the world to share the gospel, mostly with Gentiles. They have a lot of adventures, they get into a lot of close scrapes, and then they come back to Antioch, and they tell the tale to everybody's delight. This little startup in Antioch is a force. The world has literally never seen anything like it. But that's not good news to everyone. Because certain individuals come down to Antioch from Judea and say, now hold on a minute. This is all great and everything, but you're forgetting something. You forgot circumcision, and without that, none of this other stuff matters. In fact, without that, you can't even be saved. Shots fired. They kind of have a point, though. They kind of have a point. We are talking about the central feature of an ages-old identity. We all know what we're talking about here, right? The practice of circumcising every male born on their eighth day. 
It's a practice that distinguishes them from everybody else who is not them. It goes back centuries, all the way back to Genesis, to God's covenant with Abraham. As long as there has been Judaism, there has been this. The early church is still mostly steeped in Judaism. It's still mostly ethnically Jewish. And though the disciples have recently been astounded by the revelation that the Spirit has been given to the Greeks, the Greeks who are not Jewish, in the very same way that the Spirit has been given to them who are, nobody is talking about getting rid of things that serve to distinguish these disciples from the pagan world around them, the things that have served to distinguish their ancestors from the world around them. Nobody's talking about doing that. Because distinctions are important. They tell us who we are. Our borders, both literal and figurative, our language, our foods, our customs, it's all a kind of glue that holds us together in the face of forces that would tear us apart. Distinctions are important. And how much have these certain individuals already given up to follow Jesus? When the story moves into Jerusalem later in the chapter, we learn that some of them are Pharisees. And I almost, I almost missed that. But it is really astounding. Pharisees in the church. Every interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees in the Gospels is negative and fraught with conflict. That some of them now have come to believe in Jesus and Jesus' mission. They've joined themselves to the disciples that they were before trying to get rid of. Can you imagine what they have given up already? Can you imagine what it must be like for them to consider being okay with abandoning such a central element of their identity as this? To give up one more thing. To give up this thing. It must feel like a step that they'll never be able to come back from. I think we get this. I, I was very fortunate to spend about nine months in Northern Ireland right after the Good Friday Peace Accord was signed in 1998. And almost everybody I met in my time there, Protestants, Unionists, Catholics, Nationalists, they were all struggling to cope with the removal of distinctions like this. Distinctions of language and border and religion, politics, things that for as long as they'd been alive had been their identity giving those things up, even though it was for the sake of peace, was no easy matter. In fact, it was genuinely terrifying. So, these individuals who come down to Antioch really have a point. Distinctions are important. But the story of Jesus is a story of distinctions being overcome. The church in Antioch knows that. So these believers in Antioch have a point as well. So now you know what we have on our hands, right? This is a church fight. It's a simple fact. You can't have a church without church fights. In fact, if the early church were not so prone to fighting, we would not have half of the New Testament, since almost all of the epistles were addressed to churches who were in the middle of some kind of conflict. And among those conflicts, no one was more pressing than this one about the relationship of Gentiles to the church. 
You can't have a church without church lights. Some rescue crews discovered a castaway on a deserted island in the middle of the ocean. She'd been there for about five years, and when the rescue crews found her, they were surprised to discover that in her time alone on this little island, she'd built structures. Curious, they asked her what they were. She pointed to the one on the left, and she said, that's my house. Just made of sticks and logs and vines. And I thought, well, that's great. What, what do you need the other two for? And she pointed to the one on the right, and she said, that's my church. Kind of confused, the rescuer said, well, what about the one in the middle? What is that? She said, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> Wherever there's a church, even if it's a church of one person, there will be church fights. And isn't this terrible? After all, aren't churches supposed to be filled with Christians? And aren't Christians supposed to love one another? I mean, somebody might look at a church in conflict and just dismiss it with a wave of the hand, like they fight with each other just as badly as we do. If you've ever been part of a church fight, you know what I'm talking about. But here's the thing I find surprising. Luke, the author of Acts, he doesn't seem to be bothered by a church fight at all. There are no villains in this story. It's just people of faith trying to figure out the, the best way forward. Church historian Yaroslav Pelikan has observed that there are official church fights and there are ordinary church fights. Official church fights produce authoritative statements. They gather in councils and assemblies. Our denomination just had ours a month ago in St. Louis. They take votes. They decide on disputed questions. Most of the creeds and the confessions that we as a denomination regard as authoritative come out of these kinds of official church fights from Nicaea in the 4th century to South Africa in the 20th century. These are really critical expressions of our life together as a global community of one faith. But what's happening in Antioch is an ordinary church fight. Somebody did something. Somebody else said, I don't think you can do that. Debate and dissension follow. And that's not bad. In fact, it's kind of necessary. You can't have a church without church fights. Listen to how the decree of one of those early church councils puts it, the Second Council of Constantinople. It was established as certain that when the disputed question is set out by each side in communal discussions, the light of truth drives out the shadows of lying. The truth cannot be made clear in any other way when there are debates about questions of faith, since everyone requires the assistance of their neighbor. Everyone requires the assistance of their neighbor. That's what a church fight can be. Dissension and debate are critical if we are to be a vibrant church that seeks to know and to live out the truth. And sometimes the disagreement isn't even about what's true. Sometimes everybody agrees on the truth of the matter, and the debate is how to apply that truth specifically to a concrete situation. Take the case of the shower ministry that exists in this church. If you didn't know, there are showers in the basement of this building, almost right below our feet. And a couple of years ago, some compassionate, enterprising folks in this church said, you know what, we could offer those showers to people who don't have access to a shower. 
people for whom a hot shower would, would mean an absolute difference in their life? And the response was overwhelmingly, yes, we could totally do that. There was no disagreement about the truth of the opportunity for ministry before us in that situation. But then you have to figure out how to do it. How do you schedule it? How do you let people know about it? How do you pay for the things that showers need, like soap and shampoo and towels? How do you staff it so that people who use those showers get to encounter a caring person from the church who shows them where the shower is and gives them those items that they need? There's a lot to figure out. And there was some disagreement about how to do it. But the disagreement produced the ministry that we have today, which I think is one of the coolest things to happen here, at least since I've been here. And I can say that because I didn't have anything to do with it. The truth of the question about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles is already settled by Acts 15. The young church has already rejoiced in the discovery that the Holy Spirit is given to Greeks in their own right. That God is not making a distinction between them anymore. We're not arguing about whether God has made us one in Christ. That truth has already had its way with us. We're arguing about what that truth means for our life together. And that argument needs more than debates and votes, as critical as those things are. That argument needs testimony. It needs our stories. So Peter, as he has done so many times in this story of the early church, church, Peter stands up and he reminds the church, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I would be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. He tells his story because the truth that he's pointing to is inextricably bound up with his own personal story. It's not an abstraction. It's not a theological point. It's not a Bible verse. It's his story. It's the story about how the Spirit told him to go to the home of Cornelius to eat with him, even though Cornelius is a Greek Gentile, meaning that his home and his food are unlawful for Peter. <coughs> the church already knows this story. He's already told it, and they rejoice to hear it. But the best stories bear retelling. And so now, in this disputed moment, he comes back to it. <coughs> he doesn't appeal to the authority of apostles to make decisions. He doesn't put things to a vote. He tells a story. And that makes all the difference. Testimony is powerful. In moments when the Spirit is doing something new and we're not sure what to do with it, our personal experience is a critical guide. Added to the guidance of the Scriptures and the collective wisdom of the Church down through the centuries, the testimony of the faithful helps to clarify what God is doing in our midst. We need to tell our stories to each other. Our life as a Church kind of depends on it. You have a story. You need to tell it. The world needs to hear it. We need to hear it. This community that is trying to follow the Spirit into the future, we need to hear your, your story. We may not know what to do without it. Amen.